Hey everyone, welcome to episode 353 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I recorded with wildlife and nature photographer, Steve Gettle. Steve has been making photographs for over 40 years and has seen a lot of changes in the industry in that time. We sit down and chat about his journey, what makes for a compelling wildlife photograph, and how people can improve their images. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that pre-orders for our newest book, Natural Landscapes, Volume 3, is now available for pre-order. We also have a limited number of copies of Volume 1 and 2 available. These fine art books contain some of the most incredible photography of our time. We have not pulled any stops in producing a high quality fine art book. Just head over to naturallandscapeawards.com and click on the books link or find a link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Steve Gettle. All right, Steve Gettle, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, it's great to be here, Matt. Yeah, we finally made it happen. (laughs) Yeah, we did. It took a little rescheduling, but you know, I think it'll be worth it. We're both busy guys. No no pressure, right? Right. (laughs) Well, for... For people that aren't familiar with you and, and your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about who Steve Gettle is. So Steve Gettle is a nature photographer. Uh, I'm from Michigan. I've been here most of my life. My family brought me here when I was a toddler. I grew up on the west side of Michigan in Kalamazoo, and now I'm in the, on the east side of, of Michigan in a little place called Howell, which is just north of Ann Arbor. And... Uh, really love Michigan. I love the Four Seasons, the Great Lakes. We've got the North Woods. We've got a great place for fall color. Really great uh, macro photography, which is something I really enjoy doing. So I really enjoy shooting in Michigan. So um, always been a nature guy. Um, I was lucky enough to find my passion for photography just out of high school. So I've actually, can't even believe I'm saying this, I've been doing this for over 40 years now, which is scary. (laughs) <laughs> so, but but I absolutely love it, and there's nothing else I'd rather do. Um, I do photograph everything. I do macro photography. I do landscapes. I do mammals. I do birds. You know, if I can get myself out in the woods, I can usually find something to photograph. Uh, I've made money through photography for probably 35, 30, 35 years of that in all different kinds of ways. I did art shows very seriously for in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. Um, I've had an agent for 20 or 30 years. Currently, I'm with Minden Pictures, who's doing a great job for me. Uh, I actually owned and operated a gallery for a few years, and currently uh, I run a photo tour and workshop business with my fiance and partner nicole and that's what we do for our full-time job right now wow so if if you had to pick between all of those different ways of monetizing photography which one was your favorite oh i boy that's hard i miss art shows because i miss the interaction with the people that was really cool i really enjoyed interacting with people that appreciated nature and and bought and collected the work so i do kind of miss that the grind of that was hard. There was a lot right. of travel. and But the gypsy lifestyle was kind of cool. You know, all the other artists were, it was fun that way. Um, stock, if I could just do one thing, I'd probably do stock. Those right. were the days, because you could just go out, you could shoot whatever you wanted, you mailed it off, they mailed you checks. That's a great way to go. Um, but you can't, I mean, obviously those days are gone. So right. we love, I love the photo tour business. I love 
teaching people. I love having people get that aha moment. You know, the first time someone gets a, a, a bald eagle in flight, the first time they get that picture, that's just so fun to share that with people. Yeah, yeah. I thought I would. I thought I would have a hard time stepping back from the photography because I'm pretty aggressive shooter but i i really find the educational part is really cool and i enjoy yeah. that a lot i feel like there's a balance to be struck there in terms of showing people that enthusiasm and getting photos so you can show people the process of capturing that image sure. and then stepping back and helping people capture it themselves i think there's a useful balance to be struck there yeah absolutely yeah and i i have a hard time finding photographs without looking through the camera like i've right. been no, I'm the same the world way. up into rec- rectangles the whole you know but i have to i have to look through the lens and go okay yeah look what this does to this so yeah yeah no, so I'm, you, I'm you, and we do both yeah yeah cool and then i don't think i've ever talked to anyone else or maybe one other person who has a an agent what is that about what what is that use what's the use case for that so um basically stock agency they just they send out i send them my pictures they choose what they want to keep and then they market it for me and they send checks got it so it's it's awesome and it's a it's a flywheel kind of thing it's just self-feeding and the more images you get in there the more money you make and back in the back in the day that's how people made a living you know you had right. a, few a very good living <laughs> yeah oh absolutely yeah yeah it's not like that anymore now it's just one of the tentacles of the octopus right it's just one of the income streams Right, and, and so. a much smaller tentacle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I know, it's funny because um, a lot of the people who kind of came up in the 80s and 90s with film and doing stock photos, you know, they went on to create, have photo galleries and things like that, and people were like, how did you do that? And it's like, I don't think people realized how lucrative stock photography was before sure. digital, you know? Right. Yeah. And that was the only way to build a name for yourself was you had to get published. You had to have book projects. You you know, that was the way that was the way there wasn't social media. Now you can build a following a lot quicker. But back then you had to work. It was it was a big, long grind. Yeah. 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 But but it had like a more tangible endpoint, you know, whereas now it's like you can build a massive following and still not monetize anything. <laughs> no, abs- absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of those guys that were making really, really good money in stock, when the bottom fell out, you know, that was their retirement plan. They were like, okay, I've got, you know, these many images and these many galleries, they make X amount per year, and now all of a sudden X is like B, right? Right. It's a whole different, it's a whole different formula, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that as we get through this conversation. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of just dive into a, a real meaty topic. So as photographers, you know, I feel like we're kind of all on a journey to find our unique photographic voice. What's your journey been like? So it's been awesome. Just doing what I love for so long is, has been really good. I, You know, I think most of us start off the same way right we start off with a point-and-shoot camera or a phone or or a small dslr and start dividing the world up into little rectangles right and what i call taking pictures or taking snapshots just framing up a pretty part of the world and pushing a button and taking a picture and then we decide okay you know what i want to have more control over this i want to be able to change lenses i want to be able to control the the depth of field and the shutter speed and all of that so then we get into in my case it was a entry-level DSL or entry-level film camera and start doing that and then 
Um, and then usually we flounder about with different genres. You know, like I was always a nature guy, so I always knew I was going to do nature. But some people, you know, they go off into street photography or portraits or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, then you find your passion, you find your love, and you start working on that. And then you start looking around, you're like, oh, my gosh, look at these guys. They do the same stuff that I like to do. And you start emulating some of those other photographers. And it's, it's, you know, I think a lot of photographers don't talk about, you know, looking at other people's work and things like that. But that's a huge part of the learning process. You know, my whole life I've, I've always looked at photographs and I've always said, do I like this photograph or do I not like it? And if I don't like it, what don't I like about it? What would I do differently if I was in that situation? And that's, you know, that's part of the learning process. And in trying to emulate somebody else's photograph, you know, boy, I like the way he controlled that background. I'm going to try to do that. I like the way he used that light. You know, that's all, that's all part of the learning process. And I think, um, you know, I love looking at, like, the work of European photographers. They handle light and color so much differently than we do. And, and It's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's really cool. And you can take, like, I take things that, that portrait photographers do and, and apply it to macro photography and things like that. So, so uh it's it's been a been a fun journey. Yeah, and where do you or how do you differentiate between emulation and inspiration because for me it's really easy to cross over into that emulation category and then it's no longer your voice, you're using someone else's voice to prop yourself up and right. I find in landscape that's especially problematic. I know that it's a tired topic, but I see relatively big name photographers doing it pretty often where they will kind of for lack of a better term stock um you know lesser known photographers because right. you know maybe they know an area really well and then they'll you know they'll follow that person and then they'll go and copy that exact image and add it to their portfolio whereas like you're kind of stealing that person's voice and i'm just right. kind of curious like where do you kind of draw that line Right. And I think like for me, it was just part of the part of the journey. Right. It was just something I did as a learning tool. Um, you know, it's it, it's a very good question because you don't want to copy other people's work, but, you, you, you know, it's OK to learn from it. And I think in landscape photography, it's a little harder to find unique places and that temptation is always there to steal somebody else's location and there's only so many locations in the world and right. so it's hard to you know like how many times can you photograph snake river or mesa arch or you know <laughs> does the world need other photographs of that of course not but those are iconic locations because they're awesome and they should be in your portfolio but it's hard to try to find your own spin to put on it and that's my goal is to always try to you know there's a hundred million photographs of cardinals i try to do something a little different with a cardinal right and it's always trying to put your own stamp on it and and make it yours but that's yeah. the challenge of it right it is yeah and in, in landscape i feel like there's a lot of people who are very um location dependent and condition dependent and i think that's what drives a lot of what we see in terms of replication where if, if your photography depends on very certain conditions at very specific locations, it's hard to put your own voice on, on that type of approach to photography because 
it's all been done before, right? You know, sure. it's, and it's, right. um, and maybe that's satisfying for someone. Um, but what I find satisfying is when I can go to a place I've never been to before and I've never seen someone else take an image of that particular scene before and I'm able to put my interpretation and my viewpoint into that particular uh, composition and make it kind of my own my own image, you know? And right. I, and that takes a lot more, uh, I'm not gonna say, it's risky, right? It's, sure. Y- there's a lot more failure <laughs> to that right. approach. Um, right. And I'm sure there's a lot of that in wildlife too. And I'd be curious for you to talk about how they're, what the parallels are between wildlife and landscape when it comes to putting your own spin on an image. Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things is taking a deeper dive into a location. You know, one of the things I yeah. always tell people is photograph around your own home because you can be there when the light's perfect. You can be there when the when you get a dusting of snow. You can be there when that clump of flowers is in, is in their absolute peak. You know, you can you can know that split that place intimately and you can take a deeper dive than someone who might just breeze breeze through the place right so yeah. um there's a lot to be said for that as far as you know there are photographic cliches in every genre of photography right you know a cheetah racing across the the plains a, a male lion standing looking right at you know those those things are all photographic cliches and you're not ever gonna you know, it's it's hard to make an image that a lot of people don't haven't made before, and that's one of the challenges now. Of course, is you know, there's there's over three billion images uploaded to the internet every single day, right? Billion, <laughs> with a B, yeah, you yeah, know, every day. It's crazy, right? But you know, I try to do things like I do a lot of stuff with high speed flash, where you know, I'm I'm flying flying shooting flying squirrels and and gliding between trees and and high speed photography of birds in flight and things like that and trying to do things that people aren't doing but that's harder and harder all these other photographers are pushing the bar up so far and so fast it's hard to keep up so it is that's the challenge <laughs> that's that's what we need to do yeah no it's interesting because i don't yeah i don't photograph a ton of wildlife um or at least i haven't in the past and now that I'm doing uh, workshops with Munch, you know, I go to destinations where there are wildlife opportunities and we're expected to be able to teach people not only how to capture wildlife, but also how to photograph wildlife in an interesting way, right? Like not just kind of right. like that postcard image. Um, and so I've been kind of thinking about my approach to wildlife photography in the same way that I would try to convince people to do landscape photography, which is to, you know, doing my own spin on it and for me it's I'm always my approach to wildlife now is to always look for metaphors like okay there's a penguin and you know penguins are cool looking and all that but how do I photograph that penguin and and do it in a way that maybe presents the image in a metaphorical sense so for example like maybe there's this blowing snow and and the penguins walking up this steep snow drift and how do you photograph that in, in light conditions that make it feel like it t- tells more of a story about the place or about, you know, harsh conditions or survival or, you know, whatever sure. the metaphorical story is. So that's right. that's something I'm always looking for. Right. And that's the fun thing about wildlife. It's it's a lot easier to tell a story about an animal, about survival, about mating, about courtship, about whatever it is with an animal. It's a lot e- easier to do that than it is to do with a rock formation out in the desert, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's 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 all, all, often something I'm looking for too. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. What are your thoughts on accelerating the process of finding our photographic voice? You know, what are what are some things that you think people can do to 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 make that come to them a little bit more quickly? You know, you're probably not going to like this, but there really is no way to accelerate it. it it's, just, <laughs> it, it's time, right? I mean, you just got to put in the hours. I think the, the Malcolm Gladwell book, The 10,000 Hours, right? Everybody who's really proficient at something has invested. The one thing they all had in common is they've invested that 10,000 hours. And photography is no different. You got to put in the time. If you work harder and work, you know, shoot more, you're going to get there quicker, but you still got to put in that time with the gear and put in that time in the field. And, you know, as a landscape photographer, you know, those magic conditions that make for an unbelievable landscape and a really incredible landscape, they don't happen, but maybe four or five times a year, right? They don't happen that often. It's hard to really get that magic to happen. Same thing with wildlife photography. Those really cool encounters, they don't happen that often. The more time you're out there, the luckier you're going to get. But, you know, it takes time to build a body of work. And when you say your unique style, your unique uh, vision, I think you're, you're kind of talking about style, right? A little bit, yeah. And, and your style comes from your habits, your, the techniques that you do, the, the go-to habits that you have for handling a certain situation. You know, for me, I kind of think my, my style is... is clean simple hopefully elegant images and you know that's developed over over many many years and it's just the way i tend to handle things i get rid of visual distractions and i clean up i get nice clean backgrounds and and i work for that and i look for that and that's become my style and and one of the best compliments i can ever get is when somebody says to me oh you know what steve i saw that picture and i knew instantly that was it was yours right, right. that's the best compliment you can ever get because that means that you've you've developed that style but that just it takes time and i think people want to rush to get there and you'll you get there but it just you got to put in the hours you got to put in the work and yeah yeah no, i was um i was having a conversation with another landscape photographer recently and you know they have all of these really amazing ideas for how to monetize photography right um but their portfolio is like they have like 10 images or, you know, like there's not that right. many. Yeah. And it's like, I, I feel like, and maybe, maybe I'm just biased or jaded or whatever, but I feel like there's like kind of an order that makes sense to this craft. Like, you know, if you put in the time, like you're saying, and you can develop your vision and your voice and you start to develop kind of some, that unique style that people know you for, and you have a body of work that supports, you know, people being able to say okay this guy or gal or whatever they 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 seem to know what they're doing i feel like you gotta you gotta develop that portfolio of images before you start to go down the road of monetization i find so 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 many photographers are <clears throat> eager to jump down that path of monetization before to, i mean if i'm just going to be completely frank I, I just don't think they're ready yet completely agree yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah no, and that, and, then, and I totally get it. I mean, I <clears throat> I was the same way when I first started. I'm like, oh, this is fun. This is awesome. I want to make a living doing this. I want to do this for a job. But, but the reality is, it's a grind. It's hard. You got to build a following. You got to build a name. You got to build a portfolio. You gotta you gotta put all that stuff into motion before you can go out and start running. And I think 
Um, you know, social media has certainly changed that. To, you know, like back in the day, in the film days, you know, you had to get published in calendars and do some book projects and do all that before anyone even knew you existed, right? Now with, with social media, that supercharged that, right? You can go out and you can build a following and, and you can build a name for yourself. And, you know, there's guys that are really great at putting together a YouTube video on how to do something, but... You know, like you say, if you look at their portfolio, they're like, wow, they haven't really been shooting that long. They don't really have a body of work yet, right? But they can build that following and then they can market how to videos, processing videos, ebooks, you know, whoever knew. Man, I, I'm glad you said this because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was social media and how it's a, a, a double edged sword because. One thing that's exciting and frustrating to, for me, from my perspective, and, and I've kind of gotten lucky my, myself with this fact, is that social media is almost like a, it's almost like a shortcut for some people, you know, like, mm -hmm. because it's, it's like the great democratizer, you know, like if right. enough people, you know, if someone has a huge YouTube following, doesn't really matter that the photography is not that good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean, they're not selling the photography. They're selling the YouTube. Yeah. And I right? mean, same thing with me. Like, I got, no, I won't say lucky, but I worked my ass off you to know, produce right. a podcast for, you know, six, seven years. And I built a name for myself based on the podcast. And then my photography kind of caught up later. But, you know, I think that's a good example of how having a social media presence can can kind of, like, I don't know, shortcut the process a little bit it, it can certainly shortcut the process of building a following can it right, shortcut the right. process of being a better photographer i don't know you know <laughs> and, and, and in some ways i mean you're a good photographer obviously but you know in in some ways i think social media feeds the ego without helping you to have the growth and sometimes growth comes from painful you know when I first started taking pictures, I had been taking pictures for probably three or four years. I had professional gear. I had very good gear. I was out there working all the time. And all my friends and family told me, Steve, you're an amazing photographer. It's just you're the best. unbelievable. You're the best ever. And <laughs> I went in and I joined this camera club of, of very good photographers. And I went in there and I thought, oh, I'm going to show these guys I'm a good photographer. And I had the biggest serving of humble pie ever, you know, because you think you know, but you don't really know until you start, you know, and, and social media is very much like that, right? You get likes you get nice comments you know the the general public is is feeding you all these things that that reinforce this this thought that you're you've got talent and yeah i'm sure you do at some point but when it comes down to being a great photographer and having all the technical stuff down you may you know the general public doesn't understand or see that as much as as real photographers do and it can build right. you a false sense of security well not only that but I mean, we're talking about images on a phone screen on Instagram, you know, that have been heavily yeah. cropped or, you know, the resolution is tiny. So it hides a lot of the errors and mistakes that we would normally see on a bigger screen. Right. And, oh, absolutely. And then, you know, who's making images popular on Instagram? It's it's not other photographers, right? It's it's the public, the public. who, you know, like they see something that's big and flashy and 
bright and shiny and they're gonna think it's incredible and like the rest of right. us are looking at it like that looks terrible <laughs> you know right, so, yeah. um but it's interesting that there's a huge gap between what the public finds good and what a, like what experienced photographers find good and i've always had a hard time understanding why that gap is so large <laughs> yeah yeah it is interesting I, and i think you know it's on the public's from the public's perception, it's, it's not, you know, they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Photographers, we tend to look at things more technical and, you know, that should be sharp or that hotspot's really distracting or, you know, we, we drill into the technical and, and the public is more emotional, right? They mm. just, this touches them, this moves them. They can look past those, those technical flaws. And that's, you know, who's to say they're wrong and, and we're right, right? Right. No, I mean, but it's funny because I look at some of the photographs that I've had become quote unquote successful on social media and it's some of my worst images, you know, and it's, um, you know, I look back to like 20, 2012, 2013, I was posting some really terrible stuff and people right. loved it, you know, and like, yeah, it's, uh, it's just wild to look back on that right. kind of stuff and uh, like try to understand why is it that this photography connected with so many people and and i hate it you know <laughs> right yeah no i think that's always hard to look back on your work you know it's always because you've grown and you've gone so far and yeah you're you're almost embarrassed by it now right yeah no that's oh for sure common. yeah 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 i look yeah. at some of the prints that my parents have in their house i'm like oh my god could you please take that down right, i will give yeah. you new prints for free yeah Just, exactly can you please put these away <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this one's over yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, and I think that whole ego boost thing is important to touch on because um, I know that I, I, fi I fell into that trap with social media that, you know, I, I really liked getting lots of likes and comments and shares on my images. And I think just last week I had an image that had more likes and shares and comments than I've ever had on a photograph in my life. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. I wasn't that excited yeah. about it, you know. It just well, didn't. it is cool. And it's, you know, I mean, it's designed to suck you into that, right? It, right? It's designed to give you that dopamine hit every time. And, you know, it's it's designed to do that. And it's it's good at what it does. And it is validating. I mean, look, to have someone look at your image and, and take the time out of their busy schedule to make a comment and, and to make a thoughtful comment on it, you've moved them. You've touched them in, in some way. And that's that's validating. You know, so there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that doesn't necessarily equate to being a great photographer, like some people think it does. Right. Well, you know, I think the the big, big problem that we've reached is that because of the powerful democratization of social media, social media has now become the tastemaker of what's become, quote unquote, good in photography. Sure. And it's really transformed the landscape in terms of um, what people come to expect out of images that they see online. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. If it's yeah, not hyper-processed photograph on steroids, it doesn't, it doesn't even turn people's head. It doesn't even slow them down in their feed. Right. 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 And that's a, I mean, that's that whole problem has been motivating for me to try to figure out ways to like, move it in a different direction like i purposely unfollow people on social media if it's stuff that's too 
in your face that way. You know what I mean? Like, I just, to me, it's if it's popular on social media, it's probably not for me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as as we grow as photographers, I think our tastes change a little bit too. We're we're looking for the we're we're more attracted to the more subtle things. We don't need that flash to turn our to turn our heads. Right, you know. right, right. No, that's true. All right. Well, I know we've touched on this a little bit, but um, you know, you've been at this for you said thirty five years now. Let's talk honestly about what it actually takes to make a living today in twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four as a nature photographer how has this changed over the years and where do you think it's going well yeah i mean like you say we have touched on it i I think it has made a major shift since since digital um you know like back when i was coming up it was stock photography books things like that and then art shows back in the 80s and 90s my goodness art shows were so lucrative you could you could do 20 20 shows a year and make a very good living Mm. since digital has come out everybody's a photographer everybody knows photographers and they buy they get work from other photographers and and art shows have become a lot harder to make a living at it can still be done but it's not anywhere near what it used to be um yeah and what i found interesting about art shows is that uh at the risk of sounding like a jerk here but I found that the people that are the most successful at art shows, once again, are not necessarily the people producing high quality work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure that's probably true. I haven't I haven't been to an art show in a while, but yeah, that was there were there were when I was doing it, there were some very talented people out making making a good living. But um, I think you know you're 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 selling to the public, and and the public are, are going to have different values and scales than we're going to have. So right. it's probably yeah. not surprising. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about what typically does well at an art show versus what we think should do well at an art show, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was selling, you know, art shows, it's a hard thing. Like, when I did art shows, I was doing wildlife, so I was selling wolves and cardinals and loons and things like that. And it was, it was... It was an easier sell because people realized if I want a picture of a wolf, I better buy this picture of a wolf from Steve because I'm never going to get a picture of a wolf. And the guys that were selling landscapes that were doing well were selling big, giant, you know, 40 by 60 inch prints that people realize that they're not going to ever be able to make themselves. So if they want it, they got to buy it from this guy. And and the guys that were doing the intimate landscapes and the the you know garden flowers and things like that, that was always a tough sell because people had the perception. That they could do that themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. But you know, but nowadays, you know, with the explosion of photography and nature photography, the the real way to make money is through education, right? Through doing photo tours and workshops and 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 eBooks. And there's so many different avenues now to to educate people. You know, I people are doing post processing presets and you know processing tutorials and and all of that stuff but i think you know to our point that we were talking earlier in order to to monetize that you still need enough of a following that you can you can have an audience to sell it to and to to market it to you know and that goes back to that putting the time in you know if you if you want to do an ebook and you don't have a big enough following to to make any money off the ebook is probably going to be a waste of your time so you still need to build that portfolio you still need to build that following in order to get that but that has also become easier through social media 
So it, I think it's easier in a lot of ways to do it today than it was back then. But it's harder because there's just so many more of us trying to, to make make a dime off of it. And I I think, you know, and making money off of photography, it's a pyramid, right? There's a lot of people at the base of the pyramid making a little bit of money. And to get up to the top where you can make enough to live on, it's a lot harder. It's more rarefied air to get up there. So Yeah, and it's funny because... It's funny because the top of the pyramid, I feel like most people are like, oh, that means they're making millions of dollars. It's like, no, I'm, I'm just able to put food on the table. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, too, like, for me, I, my photography has been a huge passion. I mean, other than my family, my priority is, is after my family has always been my photography. And I have built my life around my photography. When I was first getting started... I, I started a, a small tile company, and I had guys in the field that were setting the tile, and I was running the office, and I was doing the estimating, the bidding, and the whole reason I did that was because I could do. I was my own boss. I could set my schedule. I could go out at the. If it was nice in the morning, I could go out and shoot. If I wanted to do an art show, I could take you know Friday off and go do an art show as long as as I got the work done to keep the guys working, you know. So I had my own schedule, and I think that's you know especially when you have a young family you you got to feed the family you got to get the kids through school you got you know there's a lot of expenses and you got to make sure you can do that and and then the whole time of doing that you're building a name you're building a portfolio you're building a following and then slowly you can work into to full time but it's 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 hard thing to just jump right into yeah and you i feel like nowadays you have to have so many other skill sets i mean being a good photographer is like not really that important. Like you don't have to be a decent photographer, but you also need to be like, especially if you're doing education, you know, you need to have a, a decent personality. You have to have people skills. Sure. Um, that gets rid of half the nature of photographers. Cause they're like, I hate people, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? know, exactly. And then you've got to have marketing skills and you have to have writing skills and you have to have business acumen. I mean, there's so many different layers. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, you got to be an octopus. You got to, you know, have the stock photography. You got to have workshops. You got to have books. You got, you know, there's all these different things that you have to be. And most of the, the most successful photographers I know are the best marketers I know, right? Marketing oh, is sure. a huge part of it. And most of us, you know, it took me a long time to, to be able to say, hey, look at me. Look at, you know, I mean, that's we're generally, like you, like you pointed out, generally introverts, and we don't want to shout from the mountaintops, look at us. And right. you have to do that. You have to toot your own horn sometimes to, to get noticed. And yeah, that's just... It kills me when the people with the loudest voice often have some of the worst photography or they're some of the my least favorite personalities in the business you know yeah like, no that's yeah <laughs> it's like yeah we hear you and we'd, we'd wish you could turn it down a little bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well that was i think now because because nicole is is a really my partner my fiance is a really good salesperson she's just she's got a nice way of, and i think now if i could have had her because when i did art shows i didn't sell anything i never sold anything to anybody if you want it buy it i don't 
you know, I don't want to sell it to you. No, I don't want to get my hands all dirty selling it. But Nicole would, oh, my God, people, no one would walk out of the booth without a picture of Nicole. Was like, there, you have to so. buy something before you leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's she's very, very aggressive that way. Not aggressive, but she has a good a good demeanor for doing that. Yeah. So. I wanted I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the workshops thing because I saw a relatively oh I would say it was bombastic is maybe the word I would use there was a claim I saw he did a reel and he said basically in his opinion of course without any supporting evidence that's why I wanted to ask right. you about it that workshops are dying and that you know within the next five to ten years. There will be no more workshops, and people have to find another way to make money. And I'm just curious, do you see workshops going away that quickly, or do you think they're slowing down? Or What are your thoughts on all that? You know, so there's two different things there. There's workshops and there's photo tours, right? And those, for us, those are two distinctly different things. A workshop is a learning-intensive, usually a smaller a smaller trip to like the Smoky Mountains or Bosque del Apache or something like that where we're going to just see and solve photographic problems, right? And it's just a learning. It's a beginner and entry-level type thing. Not necessarily entry-level, but like Bosque, if you want to learn how to do flight photography, we'll take you to Bosque and you're going to go away yeah. being a great flight Cr- photographer. Cranes are a little and slower. It, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, We start off with cranes and we end up with widgeons. So, yeah, that's that's the way it goes. Um and then there's photo tours. Photo tours are big, epic adventures to Borneo or Madagascar or, or Costa Rica. And it's more about making sure you're in the right spot to get great images. And I think there's always going to be a market for both. Um, you know, once again, everybody's getting into the business. Everybody wants to monetize their photography. You know, the equipment's expensive. The travel's expensive. We want to find a way to pay for it. Um so it gets harder and harder if if you don't have a name to draw those people in to do that. Um, you know, our tours are, are doing really good. Knock on wood. We're very lucky. You know, there was a big... I'm concerned to see what happens over the next couple of years because there was some pent-up demand after the, after the pandemic, obviously, and things sold right. out really quick. Like, we're sold out through 24, I think. Um, and we're just getting ready to release our 25 schedule, so we'll see how that goes. But... Yeah. I don't see any any signs of it slowing down, but there there are a lot more people getting into it, and we do more photo tours than we do workshops. So, yeah, and it's I think I think the problematic variable that people need to start thinking about is that there's there's a demographic shift, right? So like right now you have all of these boomers who have a lot of money. Sure. Just being honest, they, I mean, if right. you look at the numbers, boomers have, like, like they're like 20% of the population, but they have like 80% of the wealth or something Yikes. like that. Uh, wow. Some, something like that. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure the numbers aren't quite that, I mean, but I've heard that it's, it's pretty sure. disparate in that way. And so as those people get older and older and older and are no longer able to go on these trips, the generation Gen X, which is me and probably you, they're not as equipped with the money as they were. And I'm just curious how that's going to change the landscape in terms of uh, who's able and willing to, to do these trips. Sure. And that's absolutely, I mean, like our business is all 60, 70, even 80 year olds, 
You know, exactly. That's because those are the people that have the time and the money. You know, exactly. if you're in your 40s yeah. and 50s, you're still working. You still got your nose on the grindstone. You don't have the time and the money. You know, you know, you might take one trip a year, but you're not going to take three like some of these people. So, right. and I think the way people learn has changed, right? Like your generation and certainly right. the generations after you, they don't go to camera clubs. They don't do any, you know, that's, that's kind of laughable. They, they learn on YouTube. They learn on, on tutorials, they, you know, things like that. They don't, they, they don't even buy books a lot of, you know, if right. you want to learn something, you pull up a YouTube video. Yeah. And in some ways that's problematic because you can put a lot of trust into really bad information. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, but I, I mean, think, I go ahead. I was gonna say, I know we're going to talk about this eventually but you know that was what was so good about camera clubs is that people could get honest critique from people in person where they're gonna be brutally honest about your images whereas nowadays you post it on social media you get all these likes and comments and people are like that's incredible and there's there's no there's no space for actually getting the types of critiques that are needed in order for you to improve well, and I think that's probably nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's probably not a bad thing. We don't want we don't want to encourage honest critiques on an Instagram post. That could get ugly real fast. But oh, I don't mind I, it. I, Bring yeah, it. Well, but put it in a message, right? Do it in a message, right, right. not not on a comment. But um, yeah, but I, I I do think there's a shifting demographic there, and it'll be interesting to see. And I think you know the other thing about. To go back to the photo tours versus workshop things, you know, you can self-teach yourself how to do birds in flight. You can self-teach yourself so many things. But if you want to go to Africa and put together a good safari, you're not going to know the people. You know, you're better off to go with a tour because we're going to make sure that you're in the right place at the right time with the right vehicles. You know, all of those logistics are all here. Same thing with going to Borneo or any big trip like that. So I think... You know that's a little that's a little different too, and I think that will always be that way, right? Because right. just the logistics of putting together trips like that, as you know from from your experience with things like that, it's a lot of work to put those things oh, together. It's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the devil's in the details, and I think right. You know, the, as I think about this problem, I try to think about you know what what do people maybe. What do they need from photography education that maybe they don't know yet? And I, what I find is that when people do trips with us, um, a lot of times we're teaching them stuff that they never even thought about before in terms of what's possible or um, how to think, you know, composition. You know, like sure. so many people do workshops and they're like, well, I'm just going to get you to the place and like I'm going to show you the shot. Right. But like, isn't the point of education to help people become better so that when they go out on their own, they can take good photos without your help. You know what I mean? Right. So. Yeah. And certainly, you know, like during a photo tour, we're going to do things like night walks and macro photography and things that people don't ever do. So we're going right. to be teaching them all of those techniques too. And then, you know, if I'm shooting alongside people, I say, hey, you know what, guys, turn vert, go make sure you do this vertical or zoom out and get that tree in there too. Or, you know, give them all of those, those tips too and, and just get people thinking differently. Right, right. So, but there's well, nothing like, as I'm sure you're aware, being able to to go to a location and have just a totally immersive 
experience in a place and your photography and you know coming away with just some epic images that's just such a treat that that not a lot of us get to do right yeah i was gonna say early on in this podcast i famously made comments about i didn't think workshops were all that useful and now that i've done a few um and i can see you know with the right amount of education and the right approach you can really see tremendous improvement in people's photography and their approach to making images in a, in a much shorter amount of time. Sure. So I think, I think they do have value. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it's that total immersive thing and, and exactly, having yeah. the time to, you know, most people go out there weekend warriors or they go out and they spend a couple of days here and there and they shoot for a while, then they put their camera on and they may not shoot for another two weeks, you know, but when you're in a place for 10 days, you're, you're going to, you're going to evolve. Yeah, especially if you have somebody chattering in your ear all the time. So Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and one of the things I love about our workshops is that we we spend a lot of time doing image critiques and where we're helping people, you know, become better but as more of like a master class type format where people can share their images and and then as the instructors we're we're critiquing things or talking about things we would do to improve the image and then other people in the room are also saying like, oh, like, have you tried, thought about this or have you tried this? And so it's like a really great learning experience where people can, you know, get a lot of value out of seeing everyone else's images critiqued. And along those lines, I'm curious, you know, why do you feel constructive criticism is so important in this craft? Well, uh, back to my earlier example, when I walked into that camera club thinking I was a god of photography, <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't know what you don't know right until you start getting that constructive criticism and it's it can be painful if you're not up for it or if it's not done well I, you know giving someone a critique is an art right you have to agree find the good you have to compliment the things they do right and then just pick out one or two things you know maybe you might want to try this maybe you might want to do that but until we know that that hot spot in the back of the in the back of the bird portrait is going to be the first thing people zoom in on and not the bird you know we don't know to avoid that we don't know to get that out of our picture so you know it's just such an important learning tool to make better stronger stronger images and you know it's like you know like what we what you do and what we do is you get a whole bunch of different opinions and they're not all right they're not all wrong they're all just different right you know i'm going to shoot something completely different than the way you're going to shoot it and that's awesome that's fine that's as it should be but you know getting those other thoughts helps you to grow as a photographer and and to see things that you may not have seen you know in the past and that's one of the things that i feel is is sad about social media is you don't get that feedback and it's one of the things i see sad that like camera clubs are dying like camera clubs were a great place to get that that was like the farm system for photography right you you would get and you would you would get this, these critiques and you would grow as a photographer you'd be able to talk equipment you'd be, be able to talk location you get friends to go out and travel with you know it was but that's you know that's slowly fading away with with this next generation i think mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's funny because I think camera clubs have a lot of potential, but every time I've gone to one, I've been like, this is just not for me. Right, you know, yeah. No. Like, there's no one here that's my age. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's, the, that's the biggest problem, is, is that they're just, 
they're just a bunch of older older photographers now right yeah and there's no young you know you gotta have people of all the different generations in there and some of them like like we we uh during the pandemic we did zoom presentations for camera clubs for like hundreds of, that's what we did during the, during the pandemic we did zoom presentations for camera clubs all over the world and some of them were really dynamic and some of them not so much so you gotta, you oh, gotta yeah. stick your toe in a few to find one that's good but it's getting harder and harder because they're kind of fading away and after the pandemic they just haven't come back yeah no i i agree just real quick i think we should all strive to find a mentor someone you know who can help us and guide us and give us that critical feedback and help us to grow as photographers because unless you hear the negative stuff or, or you know and you can take it or leave it but you, you know you got to be exposed to other people's ideas about your images in order to grow because we get tunnel vision we're like oh god i know how hard i work to get that picture it's got to be awesome but you know so that's important yeah no i think that's really important and i think if you're going to do that you need to open yourself up to some vulnerability and and really just, you know, don't take it personally if someone says, you know, I think this photograph is terrible, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you got you to gotta allow that. And I have, you know, I have people on, on our trips that'll say, you know, boy, that's great, Steve. Did you think about doing this? I'm like, oh, man, doggone it, I missed it. You know, and we all do that. Totally. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean... It's funny because I can look at other people's photographs all day long and find things that that I would do differently. But if it's my photograph, I have a much much harder time doing that. Sure, because you in your head you've thought thought you've thought of all the variables, right? You've you've been through that process. You were standing there. You made the best picture you could possibly make, but yeah. maybe not, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's funny. I mean, the I feel like even the best photographers in the world they bounce their images off other people before they release them because sure. You're gonna miss stuff that yeah. you just you, like you said. You have tunnel vision. You think your work is amazing when it might have some issues with you know that you missed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about travel. I know you do a lot of traveling as a wildlife photographer. Obviously, you know you're toting around these ginormous lenses. What's it like for you? Like, how do you pull that off? So. Um, well, it's not, you know, it used to be, and I, Nicole and I still shoot with, with like big 600 F4s, but most of our clients, you know, it's changed so much. You can, like a trip to Africa, you can take a 150 to 600, a 70 to 200, and a 24 to 70, and you're good. You know, you got a little tiny camera bag, it's not such a big thing. But, um, you know, getting the gear there is one thing. Generally, we try to to carry on all the all the glass, right? We put that in our in our carry-ons. We put everything we need when we hit the ground is in our carry-ons. Our, our cameras, our battery chargers, our computers, our cards, our cable releases, our hard drives. We carry all that stuff on. We use a big roller bag, and then we use a shoulder bag. That we, like a, I think it's a the think tank visions bag and if we can put lenses and all our computer stuff that all comes on the plane with us it never leaves our sight then um you know shorter shorter lenses tripods heads um you know some flash equipment some of that stuff we'll check and that and we're fine with that if we're going to you know costa rica or ecuador we bring a six six flash light system for doing high speed flash of hummingbirds that we we have people shoot on and that is in a pelican case in the belly of the plane um 
So, but the, the the key thing is to carry on the important stuff and to check the other stuff. When we get it where we need to go, we can usually buy a tripod if we need to, if it doesn't show up or something like that. Um, and then just, you know, over the course of years, learning what to bring, you know, because what you're going to bring to Africa is going to be something totally different than what you're going to bring to Borneo. Because Africa, you're working out of a safari vehicle, you're shooting off a beanbag. In Borneo, you're going to do a little walking around. You're going to do more night photography, more macro photography. So, you know, getting the, the equipment list for the different different destinations is, is kind of tricky. Yeah, and then conveying that to your clients in terms of, because I, what I find is a lot of times people are like, well, I really want to bring this, this, and this on this trip. And it's like, trust me, you're not going to use that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? It, yeah. Sometimes that's that's that can be hard. Yeah, yeah, and we send out a a pretty comprehensive trip book for every trip, telling people about what to expect with yeah, voltage. We do too. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. People, people still question it. No, no, they absolutely do. And I, you know, if someone really wants to bring something, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Knock you're yourself out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're welcome to bring it. I don't think you'll use it, but you know, yeah. Yeah, what I find though sometimes it's like. Please, please don't bring that because you're just gonna be slower now. You know, like right, yeah. You're gonna slow the whole group down because you've got 200 pounds worth of gear that you're not gonna use on your back. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of our trips, we're not doing like I think with landscapes, you guys are doing a lot more walking than we're doing. You know, we've got bigger lenses and and we don't we don't hike far. I don't even bring. I I killed myself with a big old backpack for a long time. I don't even bring a backpack anymore. I'm a roller bag guy now. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Man, roller bags, like, whenever I see someone bring a roller bag on a trip, I'm like, nope, you're not going to make it too far with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, then you bring, you, you know, I carry things on my tripod, and, and we have <laughs> rapid straps, double rapid straps, and, yeah, mm -hmm. we figure it out. But, yeah, yeah, I have a terrible back because of my backpack for, for 30 years. So I'm, yeah. I'm a roller bag guy now. That's funny. Yeah, no, I can't do the roller bag. I mean, that would... I mean, imagine walking like four miles in a sand dune with a roller bag. <laughs> I imagine walking four miles anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think if I've ever walked. No, yeah, we're not. We're not big. You're a big hiker. Yeah. Didn't you just For do sure. a big, big walk across the mountains? Yeah, 500 miles. Yeah. You walked 500 miles. Yep. Oh my God. Yeah. No, I'm a flatlander. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, but landscapes, that's what you got to do. You got to get those different perspectives. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. One of the things I, you told me about that I thought was really interesting. So you've apparently like turned your property where you live into this massive nature photography paradise. And I would love for you to tell us what that's like. What did, what did you do? So that was our other. So when the pandemic hit, Nicole and I's world travel business pretty much shut down. So we had two years of, of doing Zoom presentations. And then we had just moved into a house. We, we found a really cool house. Uh, it's 10 acres, backs up to, to state land. It's awesome. But the guy who lived here was very utilitarian. So the yard area was a big giant gravel turnaround and, and a bunch of gravel out to the barn. It was just a big gravel nightmare. So we got rid of all that gravel we trucked in a bunch of topsoil and we put in probably an eight or ten thousand acre wildflower meadow and wow. uh, 
Not acre. Did I say acre? Square foot. You did. <laughs> Eight or 10,000 square foot. I do that all the time. Wildflower meadow. And Nicole, who is a wonderful naturalist, she went through all of the guidebooks, figured out what butterflies we could possibly get in our yard, figured out what their caterpillars eat, and figured out what they like to nectar on, and that's what we planted. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's just, and it's awesome. It just, the, the flowers change every year. And then we put in, a, we dug a big pond, a, a wildlife pond, and we put in blinds. I've got a, a, a reflection pool blind where there's a reflect a 12-foot-long reflection pool and then a blind sunk into the ground so you're right at water level. And we what? get birds and chipmunks and, yeah, it's super cool. Well, that sounds amazing. And unfortunately, we're never home now, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when we are home, it's awesome. And then, you know, like like the yard, and it just continues to pay dividends. We got bird feeders. Like when we first got here, we're, we're next to a state park, so there was a lot of wildlife. But with all the feeding that we do and all the habitat that we built, it just pays dividends whenever we're home. I went out one time, I guess it was last August, and found 25 species of butterflies in my yard. Wow. Which is just crazy. And it's all because we built this habitat, right? Yeah. So, are you are you finding that you're able to make portfolio-worthy images just right there in your backyard? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It feeds my stock photography, you know, when we're home. And it's it's nice to just be able to step out. And, again, that goes to what we were talking about earlier, developing – your area understanding your area so many of our clients they just show up and they only photograph when they're on a trip with us and it makes me so sad because right. you you've got all this stuff near your home that you know you know when those birds nest you know where this fox den is you know you, you need to take advantage of that stuff and and work those yeah. skills you know the more you use your camera nicole and i are so lucky because we have our cameras in our hands gosh probably 200 250 days a year you know, we instinctively know how to, you know, the more you use it, the, the more of an extension of you it becomes, right? So totally. if you're not shooting at home, you're not, it's not going to sink in like that. But yeah, yeah but, but that investment of time has paid so many dividends photographically. No, that's, that's amazing. That, yeah. I'm, I'm super jealous. I don't have enough space to be able to pull that off, but we do have an okay size backyard and I have deer constantly visiting my house and yeah. birds. I mean, we have, gosh, what do we have? One, two, three. I have like five bird feeders and then I have like one oh, of those. Um, I have this giant pole that's in my backyard for some reason, like this, I don't know, it's like 15 feet tall. Right. It's wooden. So at the top of it, I put one of those cages for, you know, suet. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I have like downy woodpeckers and all kinds of uh, woodpeckers that come to my house all the time which is pretty fun so now if you want to photograph that what you do take that cage off of that ugly pole put it on a pretty log put it on a pretty stick and then you photograph the birds on their way up to the right and then you can photograph them on a nice log instead of a pole right yeah <laughs> right? i know i totally so but that's the way we've set up our yard and we've got feeders with you know and i'll put you know, I don't. I put a, a perch up that I want the bird to land on next to the next to the feeder, and then he sits on that perch, and then he drops down to the feeder, and uh-huh. you know, yeah, so, that's smart. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, Steve. Well, I have one more topic for you, and I saved this one for the end in case people who don't like this topic they can just turn it off now, because <laughs> we have covered this topic a lot on the show, and I have gotten feedback from people that they're tired of it, but. 
I know it's something that you're excited to talk about, and it's something I'm still excited to talk about, and it's our favorite topic, digital manipulation of nature photography. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Oh my God, we're <laughs> going to beat that sad, poor, dire, dead horse. <laughs> we are, man. Well, that, was, I, you know. that was a hell of a segue. I can't, I'm super excited. I think I'm just going to sign off right now. <laughs> I mean, so, it's funny because I have so many people that are like, yeah, I stopped listening to your podcast because that's all you talk about. I'm like, is it though? Oh, oh my gosh, on. it isn't. I've, I listen to a lot of your podcasts, Matt, because they're very entertaining. And uh, I have only heard a couple of them. But they always yeah, get my dander up. If it's, I feel like if it's something you're sensitive about, then whenever it comes up, you're like angry about it or whatever. I don't know. Right. Well, I will. And, I will just. I will just put my two cents into the, into the space, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, it's it's really very easy. I believe in the, the the golden rule of digital manipulation, and that is, if you don't, if your process isn't exactly the same as mine, you're cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that probably went really well with the audience, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, all right. So that was look, a joke, by the way. That was a joke. That was absolutely a joke. All right. So <laughs> I'm not the photo police. I don't want to be the photo police. It's your name that goes on your work, and that's all good. So, and I am, I guarantee you, I'm more of a purist than pretty much anybody out there. So I, I got into photography because I like to photograph. I like to be out in nature. I like to, to see the wild places and wild animals of our world, and I want to spend time with them. And I want to spend time in the field making images. I don't want to spend time behind the computer. Post-processing is a nightmare to me. I Honestly, I don't even know how to make a layer. So <laughs> that's where I'm coming from. So, but my concern and, and one of the things and the only reason i want to talk about this because i don't i don't know that i have heard someone talk about it from this perspective on your podcast and my concern is how does the how does the public view photography with this in mind and you know from my career of doing art shows for 20 years i talked to tens of thousands of people who collect photography all over the country for all that time and I can tell you one of the things that they loved most about photography is the perceived honesty of the medium that not only was this photographer lucky lucky enough to witness this spectacular sunrise or this spectacular situation but they had the skill to record it on on film or or to, to create a picture of it and um my concern is and I heard someone say I think it was on your podcast that the public understands that this is they understand that this is just what photography is it's all manipulated everybody does whatever they want to things and I would I wanted to just push back on that because from my perspective that's not what they they see their perception of photography is what they do with a cell phone right they point it at a subject they push a button boom they got it they can change the color a little bit whatever and that's what the public perception of photography is and my concern is that if we're not honest about our process that they're gonna we're gonna lose that trust right and uh you know i i look at someone who would 
come home from an art show with a big 40 by 60 inch print and they would put it up over their couch and they would you know they'd have their friends and family over and the guy would go you know that sky was not that that sky wasn't there when he took that picture and that mountain is not that tall he stretched that mountain you know and and how disappointed they're going to feel and how you know they're going to feel like they they don't need they can't trust photography anymore right and that's my concern yeah well i think it's a valid concern devil's advocate you know i've had lots and lots of conversations with people about this and that sure there's a lot of photographers out there that say you know as long as it moves somebody or if somebody looks at something and it moves them emotionally they don't care that it's that it doesn't represent what was actually captured in the field you know they, that's so i think i think you're right though I, I feel like that honesty piece is important because i agree with you that the majority of people um, when they look at a photograph they assume that at least somewhat represents what that person experienced right I mean, I think that's what makes photography so magical for people is that sure. it's like, wow, you captured that moment at that precise time in those conditions and you made it look amazing. That's special. And I think that's what people find special about photography as an artistic medium. Right. Otherwise, they would like paintings, right? Like, like you can create right. a painting and that's a totally different process. But a photograph represents a moment. Right. You know? Exactly. Right, and, and I, I think, and I agree a hundred percent that there is a certain percentage of the of the public that don't care. They like that image; they would they would want to hang it. But for the people that don't feel that way, they uh, give them the information to make an informed decision. Don't send them home with something that that they may feel they've been deceived by, right? Yeah. But yeah, how do you I mean, do that? And where do you draw the line? And yeah, right. I, I know that this brings up a bazillion more questions. But you know, like well, when I go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say my view on this has become pretty nuanced over the years. I mean, I I totally appreciate um, some of the artwork that gets created through photo montage and Absolutely. compositing. I mean, there's some amazing yeah. people who create some incredible stuff that you know, it's it's art. You know, it's right. it's really oh, beautiful. It, it's all art. But I think where I draw the line is that it's for me it's about intent, and a lot of the photo montage work that I see that I like a lot, it's not trying to represent nature, right? It's right. it's trying to be a very otherworldly creation, right. and it's doing it very successfully. I think when people are using composite to create an image that is trying to convince somebody that that was a real thing when it's not that's to me like that implies an intent to deceive the viewer exactly and usually that intent is for commercial gain or social media success or commercial success or maybe they're trying to sell a workshop and to me that disingenuine disingenuous intent is where i get really wrapped around the axle i get really upset because right i just for me it's almost like a used car salesman who has a car in the car lot that's got a v6 in it and by the way one of the v one of the cylinders in the v6 doesn't even work anymore like the spark plugs are bad and then they're putting it on their website saying they have this amazing v8 for sale right and then they try to sell it to you as a v8 that works 
you know to me that's that's kind of the same type of behavior that's what i equate it to anyway for me anyway yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, like when I post on social, and I don't, I'm just actually doing Facebook now because that's where my market is. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just do Facebook. But when I post on Facebook, I, I post the image. I post if it was in control conditions because I do a lot of wildlife. And if I do a rehabilitated animal, I don't want people to think it was something wild and free. That's, just that's important. Honest. Yeah. And. I even go as far, if I do a digital manipulation, which I very rarely do, but once in a while, like I've added canvas to something because it was too close to the edge. And I, I call that out. I put a DM and I say, here's what I did. And if I crop something because I'm selling experiences and I don't want to show a picture of a full frame lion that was cropped 85% and, you know, so I put what lens it was. And if I cropped it 10 or 15%, I let people know. And I think that's just being honest with people and letting them know so they can make an informed decision about what's going on. And I don't think it's yeah. that hard to do. Right. That's the thing I've always pushed back on is it's not hard to be honest, right? right. It's, you know, it takes another two minutes of work to like add something to your caption or your description and people choose not to. Right. Um, yeah. Why is that? <laughs> You yeah. Know? Well, and and you know, with AI coming, holy cow, what's going to happen now? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's interesting because I it's it's been interesting to see a lot of the people who were super into that type of style of photography have now jumped into AI, and then they're doing the same thing with AI. They're presenting it to the audience as if it's a photograph. Wow. Yeah. They know it's not a photograph, but the audience doesn't know it's not a photograph, sure. and they say nothing about it not being a photograph. It's. It's fascinating to me to see people, you know, intentionally deceive their audience in a yeah. way that's for personal gain. Like I just don't. And get then it. do you do you sign that? I know. <laughs> well, like, you did. how do you even take credit for something like that? You know. <laughs> well, you came up with the prompts. Is that what they call it? Prompts. Yeah. Right. I all right. Know. Well, let's not lose all your audience. <laughs> We're going to go find down a rabbit hole. All right, all right, Steve. Who do you recommend for the podcast? Who do, who are a couple of photographers we need to know more about? So I, I think two guys, and probably everyone in your audience knows them, but I think they would relate to your audience because they are they are guys who do wildlife, and I like to see you do more wildlife photographers. And these are guys. I, that, I hear you. That do wildlife as what I call animal scapes. And actually, I think animal scapes are one of the hardest genres to do because not only do you have to have a beautiful landscape, you have to have an animal in there as well. And uh, the two guys I would recommend would be Tom Mangelson and uh, Marcel Van Oosten, both of whom have, have uh, books that they've just come out with. So I'm sure they would love to come here and talk about their books as well. You would be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're both probably pretty busy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, Steve, I'm glad we could get through this without, I mean, there's probably like at least two people who decided to listen to the whole thing. So. <laughs> my mom and my sister. <laughs> right. No, I appreciate it, Steve. This has been a lot of fun. And, and then for Patreon, for the bonus episode, for the people who support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen, we're going to do a fun little bonus episode with you and your partner about what it's like doing running a photography business with your partner and the gloves are going to come off i feel like <laughs> no it's all love and happiness here 
Rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> We're going to find out. All right, Steve, I'm sure we cool. will. All right. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you to Steve for the fun chat today on today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please do check out our fun and lighthearted bonus episode where Steve and his partner, Nicole, discuss the ins and outs of running a photography business with your spouse. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.